This is exactly right. That's Georgia Hardstar. That's Karen Kilgariff. And this is a true crime podcast with comedy elements. That's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> boom, 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 boom. That's all our branding. You go, okay, you go first this week. <laughs> <laughs> you want to get right into it? No. <laughs> oh, how are you? I don't have anything else. Uh, I'm great. How are you? Good. Yeah. Good. Yeah, we're back in like the, we're back in school, basically. Yeah. We're back in the old doing episodes. We don't have to be on tour, so we can mm. focus on doing episodes. And still, last yesterday I canceled because I was like, can we do it tomorrow? Yes. I don't feel like it today. I know. Please. But the thing, that's the beauty of get, being your own boss. Yeah. Is we can do whatever the fuck we, we want. We whatever the fuck we want to a point. To a point. <laughs> and then Steven's like, um, you make it so that I need eight hours to edit this show. Right. So please. Can I have? Please, can I please? If you don't mind, what do you have this week? Anything going on? Um, personally? I don't know. <laughs> I didn't write anything, did you? <laughs> Shit, I totally forgot. Um, I don't. Things are easy breezy right now. Everything's just kind of chill. Um, There's really nothing. There's nothing pressing. I'm trying to be not on Twitter that much because uh, I'm not sure if you know this, but there's a massive uh, meltdown happening in our country right now. Oh, I know that. I thought it was on Twitter only. No, no. It's <laughs> just, gonna tell me I'm just getting kind of mainlining it on Twitter and it's yeah. not healthy for you. But it's nice to know that an impeachment inquiry is beginning. It is. Um, that's good. It's uh, But it feels a little bit like when you've been beaten up on the playground all through lunch right. and then the bell rings and then the teacher comes out and you're like, okay, yeah. well, both my legs are broken. So I'm glad that you stopped this so you're cautiously optimistic is what you're saying i don't even know what to be anymore (laughs) well i don't know i don't either i feel like i need to dig underground and just start tunneling oh well i made the terrible mistake of going to see the new rambo movie it was a a mistake vince went too and i was like no thank you yeah it was well rambo last blood i have to say the first rambo movie but way back in the 80s was a really good movie yeah um and very interesting and it was about something what i didn't know um because we were basically picking my friend and i were picking between it was like whichever movies were at the time we were at the theater that's the way we like to do it yeah (laughs) i'm just an adventure and film and i love movies so it kind of didn't matter but it was like that It was just like something kind of heavy and maybe even foreign or Rambo Last Blood. So I was like, look, this will be at the very least funny Mm -hmm. and crazy, if not terrible, like whatever. What I didn't know is that apparently Sly Stallone is a big MAGA guy. Oh, dear. And uh, it's very racist against Mexican people. Oh, shit. But But and in the movie, because in all those movies people of color are killed constantly. Right, right. So you're just like, oh, I see. Yeah, yeah I see this. the end of this. This isn't great. Based upon my standards of being a human, this I, isn't something I'm supposed to... It's like maybe there was a time where we could all pretend that this was just entertainment. Right. Not in this day and age. Yeah. Um. So it was... But the one thing, and I tweeted this, was that do you watch SpongeBob SquarePants enough to know that there was one episode where Squidward became <laughs> handsome? Yeah. 
No. Okay, so he becomes I handsome. Mean, it's I don't even. So hilarious. <laughs> I'm just a fan. And the face, his face, as he is handsome Squidward. Uh huh. Is, is exactly, exactly <laughs> Sylvester Stallone's face in this movie. I love it. And it made me laugh the entire time. I was basically watching a different movie yeah. because of what it was going on in my brain. That's great. It's great when your brain can entertain you, even though you're just like sitting through 85 minutes, according to Vince, of just trash. It was garbage. <laughs> it was, it was nutso. But, and I, it would have, it was a light enjoying nutso garbage experience until people were like, don't you know what his politics are? And then I was like, oh, oh God damn it. Can we have one? Can't we, can't I freely and lightly hate one thing? <laughs> Can I have one action star that yep. doesn't make me? Um, <laughs> speaking of fan cults. Sure. We have a fan cult. <laughs> uh, and we are giving away one ticket to our Santa Barbara weekend, myfavoriteweekend.com. That's Check right. Check that out. Yeah. Um, it doesn't have anything to do with a fan cult. You don't have to be in the fan cult. No, it's anyone's chance. I think it's going to be a a really good weekend. I'm it's going to be an amazing weekend and you get put up in a nice hotel. I know I feel like I'm putting this, I'm fucking hammering this, but my dad on the phone the other day said, so what's this about the karaoke at the weekend? So I swear to God, he brought it up. So what? I don't know. He wants to do it. Well, he absolutely should. Yeah. Do you want him to host it? No. <laughs> Unless he wants to, absolutely not. <laughs> what song do you think Marty would sing? Oh, God. I mean, what's this his, what's his area? Okay. Mamas I'm, and the Papas? No. Well, he, maybe, um, Pointer Sisters for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I did not expect okay. you to say that at oh, all. Oh, you know what song he loves? <laughs> Marty singing I'm So Excited is the funniest. <laughs> idea in my mind so marty's stoked about karaoke well then we all should get stoked right? about karaoke absolutely oh my god yeah, no one a- is allowed to take video of my dad doing karaoke oh all cameras are going to be collected at the beginning of the weekend <laughs> and put in weird techno bags that That's apparently block idea. your waves your sound waves yeah and yeah. we'll send you a um a little, a little thumb drive of the of the weekend That's Peter. right. We'll capture it for you the right. way we would like it to be captured. Don't worry. Uh, don't, don't worry at all. You, everybody gets a burner phone <laughs> in, case, in case for an, of an emergency. Right. Yeah. Or a drug deal. But other than that, it's a lockdown. It's just like in high school when you do a lockdown, spend the night. That's going to be great. It's We're going to be force you to have fun. Amazing. <laughs> um, wait, let's do some exactly right. Yeah. Network stuff. Some programming. Um, we're excited for Murder Squad this coming week on yes. Monday, September 30th. They are putting out this really important, awesome episode. They're focusing on four cases of missing and murdered indigenous women, as well as the whole, you know, epidemic of it. Uh, one in some counties, Native American women are killed at a rate of 10 times the national average. So it's really, it's so insane. It's really, it's so long overdue yeah. and it's so cool. They're focusing on four cases. Um, but they're talking to, um, they're really uh, doing a deep dive, yeah. like in the way that they know how to. It's important. Emily Washington's going to be on it with them. So check that out. Um, this podcast will kill you. Their last episode was about Lyme. And I personally think everyone has Lyme disease. So I think you should totally <laughs> listen to it and see if it sounds like you. Check it out. I mean, it's important work. Also, uh, well, the percast. That's right. Stephen went to, um, CatCon? No, no, I went to the Catcade. It's an arcade. <laughs> Karen does not. <laughs> so sorry. Karen, it, it's, I was half listening. No, it's, it's, um, it's a cat shelter, but with an arcade. So if yes. you, so if you, so if you don't want coffee, you know, if you don't want to try and have a latte and adopt a kitten, you can just play like Miss Pac-Man or something yes. like that. Oh, it's and really then, cool. And then there's cats around. What city was that in? In Chicago. 
Amazing. Oh my, do they have an um, Instagram account? I'm uh, sure. Yeah, the cat kid. Great. Everyone follow that. And let's, <laughs> that sounds like so my, good. how I want my home to look. So in the background is like Pac-Man dying as you're talking. Yeah. And uh, yeah, looking and wanting to adopt a kitten. <laughs> Perfection. <laughs> Perfection. <laughs> um, and the fall line, of course, our last season was about Shikemia Pate. So check that out. It's also really important. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So much good stuff. Yeah. And um, so much great content coming we have some shows in the pipeline that we are so excited to get to share with you like on a network new shows you yeah, guys we, they will be rolling out soon oh. um it takes much longer than um we knew than we had anticipated <laughs> in any way but it's good because it's like you know they got to set up all the business they got to set up all the ads yeah. it all gets taken care of but when the, when it does we're going to roll out some hits for you guys, oh, you guys. i think you're going to be very excited yeah. we're definitely very excited yeah so make sure you subscribe to all the exactly right shows and network and shit and, yep. and keep an eye out for yeah. new stuff. I mean, we'll be screaming it at you, so you don't really need to keep an eye We're out. We're not going to let it go. No. It's going to be something that we hound you about yeah, just like it's the marty with karaoke is how we're gonna be about the new shows coming up on exactly right i have a book recommendation do it should i save it for the end no really just get, give it you're okay. all right now i just found this book and i'm almost done listening to it it was one of those books that i like cleaned the house double time because i wanted to listen to it oh nice it's so good it's called the mars room by rachel kushner i just randomly found it at my bookstore um but i've been listening to it mm-hmm. and it's about a girl who gets like a 20 something year old normal girl who gets life sentence for uh two life sentences for a crime she committed and it's all these stories around it and i can't fucking stop listening to it is it a novel or is it real it's a novel okay and it's like this her story about what happened and then the person who it happened to story and then the cop story and then this it's just like fucking great do you have the author's name it's the mars room by rachel kushner oh so sorry rachel kushner yeah the mars room check awesome. it out awesome very Rom- good the mars room is the strip club she dances in in san francisco where she lives <gasps> And that's where it all begins. Uh-huh. Wow. It's fucking good. Set in San Francisco. Uh, yeah. And in prison. <laughs> <laughs> Which wow. is like the crazy fucking details you want to know about. Yeah. You get a lot of those. I love it. Um, all the books that I've been reading, I read. You know what I've been doing is I binge the end to like the last four episodes of Succession. Yeah. Um, then I fell asleep and it played again. So then I had <laughs> dreams that I was on vacation with the Succession family. <sighs> and I think Kendall Roy and I were making out at one point. Yes, because you were. Because I keep thinking about him and I keep thinking I that see that scene? actor in, I know, in, um, I keep thinking I see that actor in traffic, which is a very <laughs> odd feeling. He's like, got a very LA actor face. Yes. Like the normal guy actor face. He, his resting, he is resting bitch face like he, is judging you and hates you, which mm-hmm. uh, is very appealing. It's to great me. for the role. Yeah, uh, hopefully he doesn't have that in, in everyday life. But. You know, a, a while ago I thought I saw him when we were eating at the restaurant down the street. Oh, and I was, and you didn't uh, with me. Yes, and you didn't say anything. I think I did say something at the time, but this was literally okay. three. It was the first season. It was like the beginning of the first season. Oh, okay. I was so hurt just now. <laughs> but I didn't think you no, no, no. I'm. It was a while ago. I'll remind you of, okay. of it. Um, I wish you would. I'll remind you. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's that's my version of reading. It's, no, it's so good. What about the show Unbelievable? Are you watching that yet? Not yet. That's okay. the that's the one with Merritt Weaver, right? Yeah, it's really hard to watch. 
Because it's the one, it's about rape, right? Yeah. And it's like for anyone who has any sexual assault, uh, you know, background, it's really triggering. Mm -hmm. So I've been going really slowly with it and watching like one half an episode at a time every couple of days. It's like kind of hard to watch. But I guess that the, towards the end, it gets like powerful and awesome and amazing. Yeah. The one clip, a bunch of people tweeted it at me of just like, because they know I love Merritt Weaver. Yeah. Um, but there was one clip just of her in a, in a restaurant where a guy was staring at her and then she stands up and pulls her jacket back. Uh, and Did you see that? And the gun showing? Yep. Like, no. And her, her gun and badge. Amazing. And then his whole thing changes and then she just goes and stands behind him for like three <laughs> seconds. And I... I love power moves like that uh -huh. so okay. much. I need to get to that spot because, yeah. like, I'm the first episode's really fucking rough, you guys. I'm so sure we'll all get to it through it together slowly. Yeah, and then but we'll it, talk about it. But here, it's just incredible, yeah. and it's Tony Collette also, right? Yes, yeah, she's in it too, right? Yes. Okay. I mean, who, what more do you want? Yeah, stop it. Um, awesome. Yeah, I can't. I can't wait to watch that. Okay, but first, I have to watch all of Miss Marple. <laughs> For some reason. <laughs> Do you watch it's, that? Yeah, it's my weird, especially the first season of Miss Marple. It was very like 80s British television or 90s uh, whenever they made it. You're a Tucci girl. Uh, it's um, through and through. <laughs> Who's Stanley it, right? Tucci? <laughs> <laughs> I thought he was in it. <laughs> Don't you see other, him in it? That's the. <laughs> <laughs> You're thinking of Poirot with the mustache. Of the no, guy. <laughs> I'm not thinking of. I'm not confusing Mrs. Maple and Poirot. No, Marple. <laughs> That's Mrs. Maisel. You're thinking. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> I got so confused. <laughs> Miss <laughs> Marvel. Got it. No, I got it. I'm here now. I'm here Ms. now. Miss Marvel is an old show that is the most Thank obscure. Thank you, Stephen, for the very the obscure. Photo. Yep. Okay. It's, uh, it's old British TV that well, I love. Stanley Tucci's in there, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's very young. A 12-year-old Stanley Tucci appears. <laughs> oh, man. Although, did you see um, our friend Dave Holmes tweeted an old Levi's ad that's Stanley Tucci was in from the 80s. <laughs> no. Did you see that? And no. he's, it, it's when he had a little more hair, even though. Yeah. No judgment. Yeah. Love the bald. Love it all. <laughs> he is so nuts hot in what? this 501s ad. Tucci? The Tooch. Let's see, Stephen. Stephen will bring it up. Okay. It's crazy. People retweeted on Twitter and everyone was just like, oh my God. Like, <laughs> it's, it's really quite something. Have you seen, remember the exclamation uh, perfume ad? Yes, I exclaim. <laughs> Uh, make a statement without saying a word. <laughs> Exploded. Well, I can't see his face, but hot damn. Oh, yeah. oh there. That, that bar went away. Let's check that shit out. I'm sorry. Hello. What, Tucci? Hello. Hi. You'll later see me in A Devil Wears Prada. <laughs> and Mrs. Marple Maisel. And Mrs. Marple Maisel time. <laughs> oh, shit. He's hot. He's hot. Right. Well, now now that we've objectified a man properly, God, that felt good. It does feel good to get it, you know, out there to give it to him. Yeah, every time you um, objectify a man, a woman gets her wings. <laughs> the darn, darn things, things got, got wings. wings. <laughs> and there we go. And here we are. Brought it back around. I realized I didn't mention your podcast, and I'm sorry. Oh, that's okay. I didn't either. <laughs> Poor Chris Fairbank. I know, really. We're doing a... Um, hated man. And <laughs> uh, we are doing an episode... So we record this Friday. Yeah. So, no, we're talking about Do You Need a Ride, of course. Yeah. Do You Need a Ride? The uh, the 
mobile podcast, right. unlike any other, <laughs> where Chris and I and Stephen drive around Los Angeles, usually uh, with us, sometimes with a guest. This Friday, um, with we're waiting for Chris's permission. I was like, Stephen, text Chris really quick and see if he's okay, and then we'll announce it. But basically, the yes? idea is... Yeah, he said yes. He's oh, good. good. Oh, good. Yeah, right. yeah, okay. Then yes. Stephen, feel free to interrupt when you have texts from Chris. <laughs> um, but so we're going to do a Q&A and basically just drive around and answer um, listeners' questions. That's fun. Yeah. Um, I've already seen a couple. A lot of people want to know if they can date Chris or if he <gasps> would date a listener. Wow. Uh-huh. I think there's going to be a lot of that kind of Well, now I need to tune in stuff. to find out, don't I? Uh, see who Chris picks as his wife. Oh, I have some the- friends that dated Chris. <laughs> I can tell you stories. <laughs> no, I would never. <laughs> He's an angel. Hey, Karen, you know that feeling when you're stressed out and your heart starts to pound and your mind is racing? I do. I know it well. Well, while there's no cure for stress, therapy can help shape your response to it. And since May is Mental Health Awareness Month, there's no better time to try Talkspace. When you sign up for Talkspace, you'll receive a personalized match with a therapist or psychologist, typically within 48 hours. Forbes rates Talkspace as the number one online therapy platform, plus their licensed professionals are in network with almost all major insurance companies. Once you meet your therapy goals, or if you want to cancel for any reason, Talkspace will provide you with a prorated refund for unused time. I feel like these days people understand the importance of therapy, but the difficult part is just taking that first step. It took me months to make my first therapy appointment. I was so scared. I had a lot of ideas in my head about it. And that's why I think Talkspace is such a good idea because making it so approachable will just get you there sooner. Then you can actually get in there, figure out what you need, talk to an actual professional and be on your way to solving some stuff that you might want to solve. To celebrate Mental Health Awareness Month and the power of talking it out in therapy, Talkspace is offering our listeners $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80. Go to Talkspace.com slash MFM and use promo code SPACE80. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com slash MFM and enter promo code SPACE80 and get $80 off your first month and show your support for our show. That's Talkspace.com slash MFM. Enter promo code SPACE80. There's something about the sound of an old-timey cash register that really takes me back. I know. It sounds like someone is about to hand me an ice cream cone, but it also sounds like we just sold some merch. That's right. And if you're a Shopify user like us, you know that this sound means you just made a sale. Shopify has helped millions of businesses sell their products online, but did you know they also offer the same support for brick and mortar stores? From accepting payments to managing inventory, they have everything you need to sell in person. So give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify POS tracks sales across all your locations. That way you'll always know what you have in stock and where. They also provide reliable tech that fits your unique retail needs, like turning a tablet into a credit card reader. And if you're looking to reach new customers, check out Shopify's marketing tools. They're easy to use and they integrate with all social media platforms. With Shopify, we have a powerful partner for managing our sales. And if you're a business owner, you can too. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period today at shopify.com murder. And here's the important note, that promo code is all lowercase. So go to shopify.com slash murder and take your retail business to the next level. That's shopify.com slash murder. Again, don't forget the code is all lowercase. Goodbye. Oh no, you're first. What am I doing? Yeah. 
back off because it's my turn to talk. <laughs> okay. I did a thing this week that I am so excited about. Oh, my God. Because you know what it is? It's breaking news. <gasps> I'm about to give you. No, you're not. A news report. And all of this, I will, I will preface this by saying, first of all, here are the sources. The Washington Post, the Daily Mail, the New York Post, Elle Magazine Online. All the greats. All the greats that you go to for your news. Daily. Um, but this story was broken by a local Indian news station, a WISH Channel 8. Oh, that good old ISH. W-I-S-H. W-I-S-H. <laughs> Wish. Wish. Oh, I get it. I bet they do something like that in their ads. <laughs> Wish. Yeah. Um, uh, it's a story that a listener tweeted at me and said, uh, could you do a deep dive on this? Ooh. The answer is always no. <laughs> um, that's virtually impossible. Uh-huh. But I will retell you the story uh, based on what other people have said. That's what this podcast is. We are, we are as shallow as they come. <laughs> um, that was... Uh, Samantha Fong is the person who tweeted and asked for that. Thank uh-huh. you, Samantha, Sa- at Sam Fong with three Gs on Twitter. All right. And then she sent me this article, which was from the Daily Mail, okay. uh, which is where most of the like quotes and um, most of the one side of the story is from uh-huh. because one person talked to the Daily Mail. And this is fucking nuts. So and I know the answer is no, but I ask you anyway. Okay. Did you ever see the horror movie The Orphan? No, which one's that? Okay, that's the one where a couple a- adopts a little girl, and then she her behavior becomes odd and erratic, uh-huh. and slowly but surely they find out that she's actually a grown woman <gasps> posing as a child. Uh-uh. Well, it's happened in real life. No! Are you ready for the alleged... Uh-huh. Real life story of the orphan. Yeah. Okay. I'm all, scared. All alleged. This is all, the majority of this, and I'm going to say it the whole time. Mm-hmm. The majority of this is very one sided. Mm-hmm. The actual not child adult Ad- adoptee adoptee doesn't have a say. Right. So this could be very biased and very skewed. Okay. And we want to start say that from the beginning. Okay. Or she's a baby and can't speak. She's a she's a. Uh, well, alleged, and when this all starts, well, let me just get into it. You know it. what? Get let, into it. Let me tell you the whole story <laughs> and paint you the picture, because I truly, even just as this story broke, when WISH broke this story, mm-hmm. the first portion of it was plenty, because yeah. they broke the story on September 11th, and it was that a couple had been accused of abandoning their adopted daughter by leaving her in an apartment they'd rented for her in Lafayette. Um, while they moved to Canada. Okay. So that was, that was the breaking story. And people are like, what the fuck? Well, since then, it's developed into what one can only call a bizarre case of they said, she said, Mm. um, and also almost exactly the plot of the movie, The Orphan. So, uh, let's start. In the early 2000s, Michael and Christine Barnett are living in Westfield, Indiana with their three sons. Uh, They run a successful daycare and they're experienced foster parents. Their oldest son, Jake, was diagnosed with autism when he was two years old. And he was told by doctors that he may never talk or have normal social interactions. I think they told that to him, like the two-year-old. You're never going to talk. <laughs> hey, they're Like waving their finger in his Jake. face. Well, so Christine, of course, this... Might be considered devastating news to some people. Christine um, 
takes Jake home. She starts homeschooling him, tutoring him herself. And very soon, um, Christine and her husband discover that Jake is incredibly smart. Right. Um, so much so, uh, his genius is so profound that he publishes his first academic paper at the age of 12. What? Yes. So he's a genius. Yeah. yeah. Um, in 2012, 60 Minutes did a story about him and the family. By age 15, he enrolled in Purdue to study physics. Holy shit. So he is like the Doogie Hauser of physics. Right. Um, incredibly intelligent. So in this 60 Minutes news segment, um, you can see that the Barnett family has grown by one member because their newly adopted daughter, Natalia Grace, is sitting there at the kitchen table uh, with everybody uh, when they take the shot of the family eating dinner. Okay. Okay. So... Here's how that went down. Okay. Um, Christine wanted a larger family, but she found out she could no longer have children. Mm-hmm. They, her and her, her husband at the time, Michael, um, looked into adoption. And in May of 2010, they find out that there is a six-year-old Ukrainian-born child in Florida named Natalia Grace, who had been given up by her adopted adoptive parents. Oh. And... Um, Basically, they're notified that this is an emergency adoption and if they can come down and basically get get all the paperwork done immediately, they can adopt this child because she's in like, I guess, you know, a crisis situation. Right. Christine um, told the Daily Mail that, quote, at the time, she felt that if she had the ability to help another person in the world, then she wanted to do it. Mm -hmm. So um, they fly down to Florida. They sign the paperwork. They adopt Natalia and they welcome her into the family. They actually um, they stay in Florida for a couple days just to let her acclimate to the fact that she is now with a new family Um, and they take her out and they do kind of family outings and they get ice cream and they go to the beach and they go to Disney World. And the only background information Christine and Michael claimed that they knew at the time of the adoption was that according to her birth certificate, Natalia was born in Ukraine on September 4th, 2003, that she'd been in the U.S. for two years and that she had been suddenly given up by her adoptive parents for undisclosed reasons. Christine tells the Daily Mail that upon adopting Natalia, um, that they learned that the child has a bone growth disorder called, and I'm going to get this wrong, um, spondyloepidemophysial dysplasia. Great job. I mean, who knows? Who knows? Um, Nobody knows. But essentially it causes, uh, it's a version, it's a, a, a subset of dwarfism, causes short stature, skeletal abnormalities, and problems with vision. Um, so uh, basically they find out that she can't walk because of this d- disorder. Mm-hmm. And they're like, fine. So when they go out to all these places and, and are, you know, kind of doing stuff around Florida, they just carry her everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so the day they go to the beach, um, they get down, you know, they're down near the water and they're putting all their stuff down and the boys have gone down into the water and uh, they tell Natalia she has to wait a second because they're the parents are trying to get their stuff together before they bring her down into the water. Natalia jumps up and runs down into the water herself. Uh-oh. So that startled the Barnetts and it would be just the first of many surprises. Okay. Um, Christine also claims um, that later she was giving Natalia a bath when, quote, I noticed that she had full pubic hair. 
I was so shocked. I had just been told she was a six-year-old. It was very apparent that she wasn't. Um, and Natalia also had all of her adult teeth. Um, Christine claims Natalia was not interested in dolls or toys and that she preferred hanging out with teenage girls, um, and had a very mature vocabulary, did not have a Ukrainian accent. Um, and in fact that Christine claims she invited a friend over who was from the Ukraine Mm -hmm. and, or just Ukraine. I'm not sure which one is the correct way to say it, but she had her friend come over to speak Ukrainian to Natalia and Natalia didn't understand anything the woman was saying. And when the woman was asking her about her homeland, she couldn't describe where she was from in any way. Christine told the Daily Mail, at the time I ran a little school and I remember Natalia saying to me, these children are exhausting. I don't know how you do it. <laughs> With a cigarette in one hand and a martini in the right. other. Right. <laughs> so this child is supposed to be six. Yeah. So we've all known precocious children. That's always a possibility. Sure. I'm going to try to also devil's advocate for Natalia since she is absolutely voiceless in right. this story. And we do not know. Great. We can't tell. Uh, so maybe she's really smart. Maybe, she, maybe the bone, um, issue that she had is the reason she had adult teeth. Yeah. Maybe she had to be smart. Maybe blah, blah, blah. We don't know. Explain the pubic hair. <laughs> Can't. <laughs> That's. Thank you. Uh, yeah. So also Christine found, uh, bloody clothing in Natalia's trash, which led her to believe Natalia was trying to conceal the fact that she had her period. Why? So all these things are adding up for Christine. Um, she believed that Talia was actually a teenager, but she said, uh, I didn't have any regrets. This is what I wanted to do. I felt an overwhelming love for her and I still wanted to take care of her. Okay. So at the end of 2010, um, Christine talked to the family physician and asked if there's any way they can determine Natalia's actual age. So the doctor orders a bone density test. And according to Christine's statement to the Daily Mail, the results of this test determined Natalia to not be six years old, but to be at least 14 years wow. old. So, um, so then Christine and Michael just start treating, dressing, and yeah. acting like Natalia is a 14-year-old. Sure, she needs a house and a family still. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. She's a teenager. Yeah. Um, but then they allege that the teenager's behavior become became erratic. Um, Christine says that Natalia exhibited odd, sometimes violent behavior. Uh, she claims she witnessed Natalia attack a baby. Mm. Uh, she saw it on the baby monitor while she was out of the room. Oh, my God. Um, and she said that Natalia began smearing bodily fluid on walls and making death threats and hearing voices. Oh so at this point, the Barnetts, um, according to them, seek psych- psychiatric help for Natalia at St. Vincent Indianapolis Stress Center, where Natalia uh, is admitted um, on several different occasions, sometimes for weeks at a time. So this is obviously uh, another part of the story that the Barnetts didn't no and that was not disclosed to them that maybe this child had a mental illness of some kind when she gets out the behavior continues it worsens and the violence uh, continues Christine claims that she caught Natalia pouring bleach um, into her coffee (gasps) into Christine's coffee 
and she threatened to stab her parents in their sleep. Oy. She, uh, Christine claimed that they woke up, uh, with her, with the child standing over them. Mm. Um, and it all came to a head on a birthday outing in 2012 when Natalia allegedly tried to push Christine into an electric fence. Oh my God. Now, growing up on a farm, I've touched electric fences a lot. What have you? And uh, it's not a great experience. Although I, d- I don't know if it can kill you. I think like an electrified fence, maybe, but not just like one for basic cattle. Not I, Yeah, maybe it's just I'm talking about the ones I've experienced. Obviously, yeah. it scared her enough that she thought it was an attempt on her life. Right. Like the ones in prison and the ones... In a cow pasture. Yeah. Probably in different levels. Different of, voltage. That's right. Perhaps. There you go. Um, but this action prompts the Barnetts to admit Natalia to a state-run psychiatric unit, um, claiming that she poses a threat to others. Yeah. So, which, if all that happened, makes sense. Right. But while Natalia's in this hospital, she admits to uh, a, one specialist who saw Natalia in January of 2012 that she's actually 18 years old. Oh, shit. Uh-huh. And the Daily Mail claims to have the paperwork that confirms that statement that was provided to them by Christine Barnett, but it, it hasn't been made public, so it's still hearsay. Uh-huh. Uh, the most concrete statement that's cur- currently on record comes from the Barnett's primary care physician, Andrew McLaren, who says in an, a March 2012 letter that Natalia's 2003 birth certificate is clearly inaccurate and that Natalia has, quote, made a career out of pretending to be a child. Oh, creepy. So in June of 2012, with the backing of several medical uh, specialists, the Barnett's successfully get the Marion County Superior Court of Indianapolis to get Natalia's birth certificate revised. So based on the medical evidence, they determined Natalia was actually born um, in September of 1989. Holy shit. And that changes her age from eight to 22. Oh my God. So according to the Daily Mail, medical staff at Indianapolis's LaRue Carter Hospital claimed that Natalia, quote, described to them. So when she, this was when she was in one of the psychiatric, um, stays that yeah. she had. She described to them how she tried to kill family members and had no remorse about it. And she allegedly told them that it was, quote, fun. <sighs> so in August of 2012, Natalia is discharged from the psychiatric hospital, and because she's now legally an adult, she is housed in an apartment under the care of Indiana State healthcare provider Aspire Indiana. Um, so that must be some yeah. it, like a halfway house for people who have mental illness and might need a little extra help. Right? Sounds like um, I would imagine that's my editorializing. <laughs> According to Christine, the bar the Barnetts also help Natalia get a social security number, apply for benefits including food stamps, and get in. ID. Um, but Natalia allegedly causes so many problems at this new apartment that she gets evicted. The Barnetts claim that they stepped in once again, renting Natalia another apartment in Lafayette and working out a plan to help Natalia earn her high school diploma and study co- so she can study so cosmetology. S- still helping her and everything. Yes. Oh, these are okay. According to them, they're with her all the way. Okay. 
Um, Christine tells the Daily Mail that she co-signed the lease and paid rent up front for a year. She says, I did everything you would do when you send a child off to college. I helped her with groceries. I bought furniture at Target for her. I was optimistic. She had a concrete plan for her life. She was on food stamps. She had a social security income for the rest of her things. She had demonstrated she was able to live. Mm -hmm. So in 2013, despite this kind of chaotic situation with Natalia, Christine Barnett finishes writing a parenting book about her experience with Jake called The Spark, A Mother's Story of Nurturing Genius and Autism, Mm. which actually went on to be critically acclaimed. Wow. Which is also kind of amazing that she got that done. Yeah. Basically simultaneously. Um, But it doesn't mean that she's telling the truth. Okay. Okay. Confident that Natalia can now fend for herself, the Barnetts move to Canada so that Jake can attend the Perimeter Institute for Theoretical Physics in Waterloo, Ontario. Shit. So they move up there and leave Natalia in her Lafayette apartment. Yeah. So at this point, according to Christine, Natalia cuts off communication with the Barnetts. Christine tells the Daily Mail she suspects Natalia may be may have gone off her medication, Mm -hmm. was possibly uh, working on conning another family, Mm -hmm. according to Christine, um, into thinking that she's a child so she can get adopted and taken care of again. Christine states, quote, she discontinued communication with me. What I did get was a letter in the mail stating that she had changed Michael from the beneficiary on her Social Security income to someone else. Oh, dear. Which means Michael's not the parent anymore and someone else is stepping in. Oh, dear. Other than that, according to Christine, I'll say it again, no other communication has been made with Natalia. Um, So in 2014, Michael and Christine Barnett get divorced. Um, Michael remarries and moves back to Indiana. Neither he nor Christine claim to have any further communications with Natalia. And then on September 11th of 2019, Mm -hmm. this year, um, Daily Mail, Mail TV gets a hold of an affidavit of probable cause stating that an expert-led bone density test conducted on Natalia by Dr. Riggs of the Peyton Manning Children's Hospital in June of 2010 determined Natalia to actually have been eight years old at the time of the test. What? Okay. So that test comes in. And that, so basically the Daily Mail gets the test proving she was a child. Okay. So if that is true, that would mean Natalia actually was a legal child when the Barnetts moved to Canada in 2013, making the move an illegal abandonment of their adopted child. So as a result, the Tippecanoe County Sheriff's Department issues a warrant for the arrests of Christine and Michael Barnett. So this same affidavit states that Natalia told police in 2014 she had been, quote, left alone when the Barnetts moved to Canada in 2013. So the police do not move to question Michael Barnett about the potential abandonment until September 5th, 2019, a full five years after Natalia allegedly spoke with authorities. Okay. Why? We don't know. Okay. And also this affidavit claims that Michael made a statement on that same day, September 5th, saying that he knew all along Natalia was actually underage when they moved to Canada and states that Michael told police Christine coached Natalia to to convince others that she was older than she actually was. No. So 
Michael's lawyer, however, says that Michael never made this statement. So this is the ins- oh, this yeah. it couldn't be more confusing. It couldn't be more What's the answer? back and forth. Okay, okay, tell me more. The lawyer tells the Daily Mail, quote, the police affidavit is not true. Michael never said he knew Natalia was a child. Police knocked on Michael's door and he spoke to them for three hours without an attorney present. Really? The statements he gave were clearly taken out of context. My client and I have absolutely no idea why the district attorney has chosen to level these accusations against my client and Christine. The affidavit has been very selective in the medical reports that it has chosen to cite. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like it's only citing the one. Yeah. And there's two other ones that say she's older. Minimum. Yeah. That's just what um, these newspapers right. have gotten a hold of. Right. So sometime during the week of September 10th, um, an arrest warrant is uh, issued for the Barnetts and they're being charged with felony neglect. Jesus. So on September 18th, Michael Barnett surrenders himself to authorities and Christine follows suit the next day. Michael is released shortly thereafter on $5,000 bail and Christine is released on $5,500 bail. Mm -hmm. The case is ongoing, but Christine adamantly proclaims her innocence publicly and to media outlets like obviously the Daily Mail. Mm -hmm. And so does Michael via his attorney. And at the time of this recording... No one knows where Natalia is. <gasps> Attempts to track her down have been unsuccessful. Holy shit. And that is this fucking breaking news story that is happening right now. Oh, my God. And it's a total. It's basically this really over the top, hard to believe. Yeah. Choice number one, which is um, a. 22-year-old is posing as a six-year-old right. to get people to adopt her and take care of her yeah. because she is mentally ill in some way. Yeah. Or uh, a family adopted a six-year-old and then couldn't deal and rented her an apartment when she was <laughs> it, like... Maybe the, the numbers are she weird. Would, yeah, though, the too, numbers are like weird. Eight or fourteen, or, or is she older than that? So if she was eight, like when she time, was eight, yeah. they were like, "I we suspect she's older than eight. Right. So can you do a test?" And they're like, "She's definitely older than 14. Right. So she's so according to that one medical report, she's n- never in this whole case. According to that one doctor, been younger than fourteen. Yeah, she's always at least been a teenager. Yeah. But Which would make it not illegal that they left her behind. But if it wasn't the case. Right. Because that was a couple years later. But yeah. she may have still been. She may not have been 18. Right. But it's all very vague. Yeah. Um, yeah. So How, oh, it's just like we don't know. And the other the to me, the very interesting thing is, does the divorce come into play somehow? Oh, yeah. Is someone because up until that point, Christine Barnett. Was the how she was known basically in the public eye was this unbelievable mother who had who had basically right. um, tutored and homeschooled her son and exposed his genius and basically wrote a book about how if your child is diagnosed with autism, that's not necessarily yeah. a bad thing, yeah. which inspired uh, tons of people and meant the world to tons of people. And that same person is this person who's like being charged with felony neglect and would just leave a needy child on her own doesn't well we don't know we know the very basics of we know the basics and we just know like this is still like a breaking story oh my god but how 
crazy. It's crazy and creepy, and I want to know the answer. I need to know yeah, so much keep, more. Keep it going. We'll, you guys, we'll text all of you the um, article that breaks when we find out. We're all going to be breaking this together <laughs> as a family. By speculation. By speculation, let's... Um, I mean, yeah, it's it's fascinating. Yeah, that's good. And good one. Crazy. And it's um current. That's like that. We don't do that ever. Oh, and sorry. This is I just remembered this because this just happened today. Yeah. Our friend Malachi, Dr. Malachi Love Robinson got out of jail that's today. That's right. He From got a couple episodes back. Yes. <gasps> so the yeah, people um, kept tagging us. He's <laughs> he's out um, and on to a better life. Well, I hope. I hope he does good things. I hope he does good things. I hope Natalia's safe. Me too. And okay. And it isn't the extremely creepy A or B or version. Either way, it sucks. Either way, it's awful. Yeah. Georgia, have you ever been blown away by the most simple dish at a restaurant? Like perfectly scrambled eggs? Oh my God. Yes, Karen. And then all I want to do is make that dish at home and eat it every day. Well, you probably could as long as you have the chef's secret ingredient, Made In Cookware. Made In was created to bring restaurant quality performance kitchenware to home chefs around the world. For years, they've built their business by supplying restaurants and top chefs with high-end cookware. Some of Tom Colicchio's most treasured dishes at his restaurant craft are made in Made In. Whether you're cooking for professional critics or just the critics you live with, your meals will benefit from the quality of Made In products. Like their carbon steel cookware, it combines the best of both cast iron and stainless steel clad, so it's rugged enough for grills or an open flame. It's the MVP of summer cookouts and cook-ins. What I really love about made-in cookware is that it actually makes something like having a Memorial Day barbecue much more convenient because you can keep everything on the grill if you need to throw, say, a pan of garlic up on the top while you're grilling your steaks on the bottom. It's strong enough, durable enough to do that. If you want to take your cooking to the next level, remember what so many great dishes have in common. They're all made in, made in. Save up to 25% this Memorial Day from May 18th through May 27th when you visit madeincookware.com. That's M-A-D-E-I-N cookware.com. Goodbye. If you're like me, you're always looking for a story to dive into. Whether it's a family drama or a mystery to solve, the key to getting hooked is the details. I need rich visuals and intricate storylines, and June's Journey has that and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young woman, on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murder. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. Explore beautifully designed scenes from the 1920s, like lavish estates and gardens, and don't forget to keep an eye out for hidden clues. There are twists, turns, and catchy tunes, all leading you deeper into the thrilling storyline. And if you play well enough, you could make it to the detective club. There, you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. June needs your help, but watch out, you never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed, but will you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Goodbye. This week, I'm going to do the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire. (gasps) I know. Girl. I know. Oh, amazing. How have we never done this before? Uh, It's too horrible to do it a live show. You know what? That's what it is. I think uh, like the first time uh, we we did a New York show. 
yeah, I thought just, of it and then was just like, yeah, that's not, really, that's a tough one. And there are, yeah. But it's so, what a great, timely. It's an incredible story. I, of course, learned so much more about it than I had ever even known. And the details are fascinating. Um, there's a hundred fucking million um, places you can find out more about this. I found out from historydoctor.net, history.com, uh, a podcast called This Day in History Class. Oh, uh, the National Museum of American History website. And then um, there's two really good documentaries about it. One is, I think, where I first found out about it, the American Experience episode, mm. which is that fucking incredible show on PBS. You guys watch them all. And then there's another one you can find on YouTube called Triangle, Remembering the Fire. Oh, yeah. And it's really good. And there's like a ton of footage and photos and awful fucking shit you can see from this, like more than I ever knew. So here we are. It's the early 1900s. What's up? Here we go. Oh, is it the turn of the century? It's the turn of the century. <laughs> oh, it's the turn of the century. Ah. <laughs> okay, in the background. Um, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory is located on the top three floors of a building called the Ash Building, A-S-C-H. It's one of the city's newest skyscrapers. It's 10 fucking floors. <laughs> like, that's what time of the oh, year. Or and the- people would walk up to it and just scream yeah. because it was so high. <laughs> what? <laughs> that's right. So, um, so it's like, it's pretty new new building and modern it's not like one of those shitty tenements there are people had to work it's on the corner of green street and washington place in new york city so it's greenwich village and it's like a block away from washington square park which mm. is the beautiful park um the triangle shirtwaist factory employed mostly women and those women were young immigrants mostly italian and jewish nearly all the workers were basically teenage girls who didn't speak any English, who worked 12 hours a day, six days a week. It was cramped lines of sewing machines. You know, all those black and white photos you see of like women at their sewing machines with their fucking head down and sewing and shit. And that's just like hundreds to a room. It's that. Yeah. Um, The work was repetitive and monotonous and the conditions were made so that the most output could be done for the least amount of money. Of course. Um, and if you're wondering what a shirtwaist is, what a weird word. <laughs> okay. It's basically a woman's blouse. The style is a feminine version of a men's button-down shirt. Um, it's like Seinfeld's puffy shirt, you know? <laughs> yep. And it's a little tiny waist and then the, the white billowing shirt that came out of it in the Victorian era. Kind of like with the Coca-Cola lady from the... Old Coca-Cola ads. Exactly. Mm-hmm. A Gibson girl shirt. A Gibson girl shirt. Exactly. Okay. Um, it's a staple of the ladies wardrobe at the time. And um, the style also symbolizes female independence. And I guess it's because they didn't have to wear dresses anymore. anymore. Like wearing a shirt and a skirt was like a big fucking oh, deal. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Right. It's like, oh, we're like, we're, we're workers. We get to wear instead of pants, a skirt. Yeah. It's not the same. <laughs> So it, it's the symbol, it symbolizes female independence and the new woman combining um, new and old fashions. It becomes hugely popular. There's like 500 factories that make them in New York City at this time and symbolizes the working woman wearing fashionable shirtwaist becomes an iconic image of the women's rights movement. So oh, all yeah. those picketers and shit. Yeah. So um, because of their popularity and the demand is so high, it also cha- it, it totally changes the nature of work itself. A shirt, the shirt waist do because of their popularity. It's kind of like how Ford did with his cars mm-hmm. in the um, what's it called line? 
assembly assembly line it's similar to that so um the production of shirt waists is a super competitive industry so many garments are produced in what's called the sweating system mm. aka it's this, d- the definition is a system of employing labor for long hours at low wages and often under s- unsafe or unsanitary conditions aka sweatshops yeah so um in the triangle it was supposed to be a nicer place to work than the actual sweatshops because it was such a huge company but it was still kind of you know strict and and not not a fun place to work they were still exploiting their workers exactly the way it worked was that um so a b- the business owner so whoever owned the triangle shirtwaist factory which we'll get into they like those owners would then get subcontractors to hire people and those subcontractors only got a certain amount of money from the business owners so they only had a certain amount of money to pay the women and they just cut corners and tried to get a profit as much as they could so it was just really shitty um and they can pay whatever they want so they get low wages to make the most profit and then to be competitive in the industry owners cut prices on everything and um, it leads to low wages for the workers there's no fucking standard minimum wage that doesn't happen until 1938 isn't that crazy? Oh, yeah. Wow. So, and this is a time, of course, when, like, you know, the government doesn't feel like it should meddle in what's going on with business owners because they were these bourgeois fucking titans of industry. And they were like, they clearly know what they're doing. Let's not police them. Let's do whatever they fucking want. Yeah. Kind of like now, but it's. But yeah, it's the, it's the seeds of now. Exactly. It's the reason now is so problematic. Right. Because they started it and it was like, they have the, everyone's best interest in mind. Yeah. And it's Let like. Let them do their thing. They actually don't a lot of them are sociopaths exactly um so they were you know they were like they're making the country successful let them do whatever the fuck they want which is not how you can't people aren't going to police themselves unfortunately no especially when it comes to money and desperation right because it's like well if this is a cut i get then yeah i need it more and more and more and you can I think that's where a lot of that kind of like you can rationalize your othering of right. people where right. it's like, oh, it's just these immigrant women. So yeah. who cares what happens to them? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Greed. Corporate greed. Yeah. So American industrialization begins in the 1920s, primarily in the textile industry. And by the 1850s, over a thousand factories are operating manufacturing. It was like a machine and the immigrants and poor people were uh, making the machine go. But, you know, they were fucking screwed. Yeah. The working conditions were often dangerous and unsanitary. There was crazy supervision and safety was not a matter of concern, of course. Um, And so workers often suffered serious and even fatal accidents because the main goal was just to churn out as much product in the shortest amount of time and they're working with these fucking machines yep. you know and doing the same thing over and over and working long hours so you're tired it's just you know <sighs> bad fucking and there's scene. no like I'm old enough that there used to be a, a PSA that they ran on television mm-hmm. about how you have to wear safety goggles. Wow. I swear to God. And it was the weird. I used to remember watching it and just being like, who is this for? This is so weird. Yeah. But it was like that thing where like OSHA standards of safety yeah. and like you can't put people at risk. Right. It Like it's a very important thing because of yeah. this stuff. And then when they do get hurt, there's no workers compensation. There's no such thing. You get fired and you're fucked. Yeah. It's it's just really it was really ugly there's also child labor in the united states it didn't go away until well into the 20th century as well <laughs> it's like crazy it's just crazy um 
But at this point in time, there's a growing movement that coincided with all of this called industrial feminism. Um, and that's a combination of unionism and working class activism. So there's, of course, the, the, you know, more well to do women who were, who were doing activism and who were, um, fighting for suffrage rights. But then there were these women who were these immigrants and they were the working class and they were uni- trying to unionize as well and get rights, which is really amazing. Yeah. Um, Very cool. Yeah. These women fought to unionize and for union standards, such as shorter hours, higher wages, safer working conditions. But they also wanted to be able to enrich their lives with access to education and culture. So they're like, we're working fucking 16 hours a day. We have no life. We want to enrich our lives. And the way to do that is education. And yeah, they knew that. So. Um, Pauline Newman, she's a, f- the f- a founder of the International Ladies Garment Workers Union and a former child laborer herself wrote a series of essays that were published in the New York Yiddish language newspapers. And they described the factories like this, quote, most of the so-called factories were located in old wooden walk-ups with rickety stairs, splintered and sagging floors. The few windows were never washed and their broken panes were mended with cardboard. Mm-hmm. In the winter, a stove stood in the middle of the floor. There was no drinking water available. Dirt, smells and vermin were such a part of the surroundings as were the machines and workers. <sighs> so if you can imagine that triangles like a step up from that doesn't mean very much. They're like, hey, we got water. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So there are many strikes at the time led by the International Ladies Garment Workers Union. In 1909, there's one demanding higher pay and shorter, more predictable hours. And it becomes known as the uprising of 20,000. Wow. Yeah. 20,000 people uh, walked out. And it starts at the Triangle Factory. Whoa. So, like, they were big organizers there. Um, the participants are mainly young immigrant girls who didn't even have, they didn't even speak English yet, a lot of them. And they absolutely didn't have the right to vote yet, but yet they still fucking did this. Yes. There are about 500 shirtwaist factories at the time, and many of the smaller ones immediately folded to the demands of their workers because they needed to keep, you know, keep up yeah, with Yeah, hell work, yeah! You know? The workers have the power! That's right. They're like, rise up, come back. Rise up. Um, but the owners of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, uh, Max Blank and Isaac Harris, who were known as the Shirtwaist Kings, because this is one of the top fucking shirtwaist factories in New York, made millions off the new shirtwaist trend. They had they had already made millions. Uh, and they had been immigrants themselves. And they are one of the few manufacturers who resisted unionization. Mm. They were like staunchly against it, of course, because they're business owners and it's going to get fucked with their bottom line. Right. Because um, you have to force people to do it. That's right. Unfortunately. So instead, they paid local thugs to attack the women, um, and they paid off police to imprison imprison the striking women. They paid off politicians to look the other way. They just fucking went all out on these women. And there's like photos of them, you know, fighting the police in the street, and it's Jesus insane. Christ! One of the founders of the union, Claire Lemlick, she's arrested and has six of her ribs broken by company guards and city police. And yet she keeps on marching in the picket line. Hell yeah. Yeah. It's like, this is just the story of incredible women. Well, and also because this is their, this is their lives. Yeah. Like when you're the, like the, the shirtwaist king, you're just sitting there eating your like salmon pate and right. going, no, they don't get to have that. Right. And it's like, you know, you, you, it, it can't be this way. And his family had butlers and a governess. Um, so they paid all the, blah, blah, blah. okay. As the strike rolls on for months, though, the women, um, mostly female workers of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, they don't give up their fight and, um, they start to impress the people of the city. They're like, well, these fucking ladies have tenacity. This is pretty badass. You know, their conditions must be really bad if they're going to fight this hard. Yeah. Um, 
And so uh, the ladies of the triangle lead the largest single work stoppage in cities in the city's history. Yes. Yeah. So the da- one of the things they're fighting for is safe working environment. And the danger of fire in factories like the Triangle Shirtwaist is well known at the time. But there's so many high levels of corruption in both the garment industry and city government um, that no useful precautions are taken to prevent fires. Like, I think there were buckets of water on the ground and that was it <sighs> to, like, throw a fire that started. So, thanks. Thanks, guys. Thanks for the buckets of water. Thank you. Um, Blank and Harris. But there's mice swimming in it. So... <laughs> oh. Blank and Harris already have a suspicious fire history background. The Triangle Factory had two fires in, back in 1902, and their Diamond Waste Company factory had had fires as well. Mm. And it seems like they deliberately torched their factories before business hours in order to collect the fire insurance, which was a lot of fucking money at the time, mm. which was an, also a not uncommon practice um, back then in the early 20th century. And perhaps for this reason, Blank and Harris refused to install sprinkler systems in their factories they <laughs> because they were like they wouldn't be able to get their insurance money. Yeah, later they, on. if they start try to start a fire and burn it down, yeah, it's not going to work. So they were there were sprinkler systems at the time, um, and they refused to take other safety measures in case in case they need to burn their shops down again. Mm. So on top of that, Blank and <laughs> Harris, ahead. yeah, real mm-hmm. insightful. So at the time the women are working like, you know, nine hours a day on weekdays plus seven hours on Saturdays and then one day off for their 52 hours of work a week. They earned a total of something between seven and twelve dollars a week, which is the equivalent of one hundred ninety one dollars to three hundred and twenty seven dollars a week in current uh, currency. Jesus. That's so like, can you imagine today we're making $191 a yeah. week? You just, I mean, there's no way it's hand to mouth. There's nothing you can do about yeah, it. Yeah. There's, and you're expending all of your like life energy right. just to get the basic survival to, to not like keep your head above water. Yeah. Ugh. That's like second job territory. For, so then you're yeah. fucking exhausted. Right. Uh, yeah. Um, a lot I, of people do it. I know. To this day. I know. Yeah. So finally, with the lucrative holiday season coming up, the deal is made, which the women for in which the women's demands, like safer working environment, are mostly ignored. They get a few concessions, like a little bit of higher pay, but that's it. And they just go. I have to go back to work. Mm. So, um, on the afternoon of March twenty fifth, nineteen eleven, almost closing time on a Saturday, there's about five hundred workers at the Triangle um, Factory. It's the top three floors, so it's eight, nine, and ten. Mm. Um, and then uh, a fire starts on the eighth floor at around four forty p.m. So it's the fire is thought to have started in a rag bin, likely caused by someone either extinguishing a match or cigarette, just kind of tossing it in a fucking clothing factory. Like even the air has particles of cloth. In yeah, it, really. You know, um, so it's probably a cigarette. But smoking wasn't allowed there at the time, but they had ways of sneaking them. Um, but it's possible that one of the engines on the sewing machine sparked and caught it on fire as well. So, it's, yeah. you know, you can't you can't really pinpoint it. The building has an internal switchboard. So the operator calls up to the 10th floor and is like, yo, there's a fucking fire here. Um, get out. So many of the 10th floor employees, including one of the owners, Max Blank, who was there, and two of his daughters who were aged four and 12, they had happened to stop by to see him with their governess. Ooh. And they were on the 10th floor. So they all run up to the roof. It's about 60 to 80 people who go to the roof. So, um, for some reason, though, no one warns the nearly 300 triangle girls, which is what they were called, at the sewing machines on the ninth floor. So, Ugh. they call it to the 10th. I think the 8th must know. No one tells the girls on the ninth floor. 
According to Survivor, Yetta Lovitz, the first warning of the fire on the ninth floor is the fire itself. Mm-mm. And there's some, I mean, it's, I know I hate reenactments, but the American Experience episode and the triangle remembering the fire have some, like, it's it's really intense. Yeah, I bet. So, the, pretty quickly, the fire spreads. The building has four elevators um, with access to the factory floors, but only one that's fully operational. Yeah. But in fucking crazy, like a heroic feat, the workers, um, of the two, two elevator workers went up and down as many times as possible, trying to save as many women as they could. So oh. there was like room for 12 at a time on the elevator, but they like crammed in as many as possible, went back up and down three times. And finally the cables weren't working anymore and they couldn't go back up, oh, but they, they saved so many lives that day. There's two stairways down to the street, and uh, one is where they enter and exit every day. But the um, uh, the other one is locked, oh. one of the exits, because uh, one of the owners was paranoid about workers' theft. So they'd look in their pocketbooks every day when they were on their way out, which you can, what, get a scrap of fucking cloth? fold my shirt up real small. Teeny tiny. Wouldn't you, if you worked there, you would fucking hate shirt waist shirts. Oh, yeah. You'd never want to wear them. You'd be like, take that off. You'd blow your nose at the end of the day and it'd be like <laughs> tiny shirt waists. <laughs> Horrifying. Yeah. Um, so one of those is locked. The other one opens like in word, which is not good. The fire escape is so narrow that w- it would have taken hours for all the workers to use it, even in the best circumstances. Oh, so workers inside, of course, Fucking panic. They're pushing. They run to the exits all at once. Um, a manager tries to use the fire hose to extinguish the flames, but it uh, the hose is rotted and its valve is rusted shut. So oh. even the precautions didn't fucking work. Yeah. And that's like 300 women fucking losing their shit. One of the women is talking about leaping from sewing machine table to sewing machine table like that time in those big skirts and shit, just Ugh. trying to get away from the fire. Oh, my God. It's terrifying. Oh, because it's coming up underneath. Yeah. Oh, God. So, meanwhile, back on the roof, the 10th floor, 60 to 80 people on the roof. So, the adjacent building is part of New York University. So, there's like the law professor and his students hear the screams. They see the fire. Um, they, the building's a little higher than the Ash building. So, the students grab ladders and lower them down. And uh, everyone on the roof manages to survive. No way. Yeah. Ooh, that gave me weird chills. Because you're not supposed to go to the roof in a fire. And, like, normally that wouldn't be the way out. No, because... They all survived. Because... And, well, and also, I just thought about whatever the distance was. Oh. However, however close or far those two buildings were, yeah. you're climbing across yeah. a ladder 10 stories up. Dude, that must have been... You're like, please hold on to this. <laughs> yeah. Please hold this. Okay. Yeah. But the people on the ninth floor, of course, are not so lucky. The shop floor is completely packed with sewing machines. There are about 300 machines on the floor. For those who can't make it to the roof or to the elevators, um, they flee down the stairwells, but they run into locked doors and end up swallowed by flames. So it's just women fighting at a locked door, which is just a fucking horrifying imagine uh, to imagine. But uh, by the time the firefighters arrive, women are standing on the window ledges or are seen pressing against the windows on the ninth floor. The firefighters get out their ladders and reel them up and they only go as high as the sixth or seventh floor. No. I know. It's just at, like one thing after another of Ugh. like ways they could have been saved and, and weren't. So, um Okay, in this point, it's a Saturday afternoon. It's a beautiful day. It's right by Washington Square Park. It's in the shopping district. People are shopping. People are out picnicking, and they see the smoke, and thousands of people are now watching this happen. Oh, no. Yeah, it's like, I think maybe one of the reasons 
that pe- people probably all knew someone who saw it and could testify to what a fucking horrible nightmare it was to watch. Right. And then um, people start to jump from the windows. Ugh. William Gunn Shepard, a reporter at the scene, wrote, I learned a new sound that day, a sound more horrible than description can picture, the thud of sp- a speeding living body on a stone sidewalk. Oh, God. I mean, and, and in one of the documentaries, they're like, people thought they were throwing like their belongings out and cloth bundles out, and then they realized it was people. Oh. And this is a time that everything is so proper. You know, you, they, I'm sure people hadn't seen anything like this before. No. Or even imagined something like this before. No. So, um, a man and woman are seen kissing in the window before they both jump to their deaths. Women clutch each other as they jump together. Some of them are even holding their pocketbooks when they jump, which just for some reason to me just like gives me chills. I know. Well, what? Yeah. You uh, grab your pocketbook. It's just, it, well, it's a piece of yourself. Yeah. It's all your stuff. It has your ID in it. Yeah. But also it's just like that you would be in such a panic. Yeah. It's horrible. Um, bodies of jumpers fall on the fire hoses, making it difficult to fight the fire. And uh, a life net is unfurled to catch jumpers, but three girls jump at the same time, ripping it. Oh. So like nothing is fucking working, and everyone is helpless. Yeah, and it's it's horrifying to the crowd. Okay, so it's a single fire escape. They were supposed to put in a third stairwell, but they like bribe city officials to just have a fire escape instead at the yeah. Ash Building. Um, so it was flimsy, it was poorly anchored, and um, it might have been broken before the fire. Soon it twists and collapses from the heat and uh, spills about 20 victims nearly 100 feet to their death. <sighs> I know. I'm sorry. I mean. Um, and the remainder just wait until smoke and fire overcome them. It's it's a horrifying fucking thing. Within 18 minutes, it's all over. Whoa. Yeah, the fire's out. In- well, because it was like a tinderbox. It just yeah. went up. Yeah. Yeah. 49 workers are burned to death or die by smoke suffocation. 36 are dead in the elevator shaft because they were jumping onto the cables trying to ride the elevator. No. 58 die from jumping to the sidewalks. This brings the total dead. 58. I know. This And there's fucking photos of it in these documentaries. Yeah. This brings a total of dead to 146. Oh, my God. 23 are men and 123 are women. Most of the victims are women and girls aged 14 to 23, the victims uh, of the victims whose ages are known. Mm. So the New York Times reports that the city coroner, when he got there, was so overwhelmed that he sobbed among the bodies being laid out at the scene and hardened firefighters and cops needed to step away. Yeah, they did. I know. Many of the bodies are, oh, this is so fucked up. Many of the bodies are charred beyond recognition. So they do a lineup of bodies that need to be identified um, at the pier near the East River so people can come identify their loved ones. And so thousands of people line up to walk through this fucking horrible thing and like find their loved ones. Okay, you ready to start crying? Yeah, I already am I crying. Know. Um, one mother is only able to identify her daughter because of the stitching on her stocking. Oh. And another woman recognizes her mother only by the braid in her hair that she had had braided that morning. Ugh. I know. Jesus. I know. It's like life fucking matters. Yeah. You assholes. Yeah. Like, it's fucking pennies out of your pocket to yeah. make sure that people have a livable fucking life. Yeah. And can feed their families and don't have to put their fucking eight-year-old children to work so that... I mean, so that you can have fucking six yachts. Yeah. What is wrong yeah. with you? You don't need six fucking yachts. You don't need a horse ranch. No. You don't need several vacation homes. You need better fucking karma, dude. Yeah. You need to. You need. To, oh, yep. God damn it. Yep. 
Sorry. <laughs> so then on April 5th, uh, 1911, 400,000 mourners lined the sidewalks of New York. They, they did a, th- um, I know the unions, um, got together and did a funeral procession, procession. Um, so they were really pissed off because, uh, the, um, city wanted to do a whole funeral and bury the seven unidentified uh, women, but they were the, the unions were like, "Fuck you! You're the reason this fucking happened." Yeah. So in protest, they did this. They had one funeral procession with an empty um, horse-drawn hearse go by, and four hundred thousand mourners oh. came out to to watch it go by. Um, the realization that the very thing the Triangle women that they had just been watching them bravely strike for and didn't get the safety con- safe working conditions is what led to their death of so many doesn't go unnoticed and people are up in fucking arms about yeah. this whole experience. Yeah. I think it kind of turns this you know flips a switch in a lot of people's consciousness in the in the country. Well, yeah, because it turns it from a concept that's happening right. to them to oh, this is what this is really about. Yeah. It's worst fucking case scenario, yeah. and they force it to happen and it's the people who were saying this is not okay this is going to happen this is going to happen and they weren't respected enough to to be listened to right and it happened yeah you know um, immediately after the fire, Triangle owners Blank and Harris declare in interviews that their building was fireproof and that it had just been approved by the Department of Buildings. Guys. You guys. Yet the call for bringing, they, the call for bringing people respond, those responsible to justice and, um, it reports that the doors, they report that the doors of the factory were locked. Yet the call, the, everyone was like, you gotta bring these fucking people to justice. There were like, you know, all these newspaper articles about it. Yes. And there were then reports that the door was locked from the inside means that um, the, the district attorney's office seeks an indictment against the owners. Good. Thankfully. Eh. Get ready to be disappointed. Of course. On December 27th, 23 days after the trial starts, a jury acquits Blank and Harris of any wrongdoing. The task of the jurors is just to determine whether the owners knew that the Doors were locked at the time of the fire, but despite extensive testimony from the workers stating that the owners had locked the door to prevent theft, the attorneys of the business owners, who were, of course, high fucking powered, high priced attorneys, um, were able to convince the jury that they didn't know. Hmm. Grieving families and much of the public were fucking pissed and felt like justice hadn't been done. Like these two guys were villainized. Like they, you know, rightfully so. They were villains. Yeah, because they were villains. Because that's the other thing that people always forget is that that's the other side of it. Right. If you don't give people their the basic human working conditions, yeah, it makes you the bad guy. Yeah, you are the bad guy. Yeah, you should go to jail. Yeah. Um, 23 individual civil suits are brought against the owners of the Ash Building on March 11th, 1914. So, so three years after the fire, they, Harrison Blank settle and they pay $70 per life lost. $75, which is around $2,000 today. Jesus. So each family who lost someone, and of course many lost siblings and mothers, and one guy buried his his wife and three daughters. Oh, I know. Shit. They each get about $2,000 in today's money, and that's just a fraction of the 400 per death that Blank and Harris were paid by their insurer. <gasps> so they made money off of this fucking no. fire. They made a lot of money. They paid 75 bucks, and they got $400 per person. Burn in hell. That's right. 
Um, Harris and Blink continue their defiant attitude toward the authorities. Just a few days after the fire, um, the new premises of their factory is found not to be fireproof, no fire escapes, and no adequate exits. So they're just like doing it around town. In August of 1913, Max Blank is charged with locking one of the doors in his factory during working hours. And brought to court, he's fined $20, mm. which is about 550 today, and the judge apologizes to him for the imposition. You pussy. You were, they were just in the businessman's pockets. A hundred percent. You know? Yes. Crooked, um, crooked, crooked. Crooked. After the Triangle Fire, the Americans... There are some good that comes out of this, of course. Okay, good. I know. Because there's a lot, there's a lot of bad. It's, it's fucking horrible. After the Triangle Fire, the American Society of Safety Professionals was founded in New York City on October 14th, 1911. The fire helped unite organized labor and reform-minded politicians. And the workers' union set up a march on April 5th um, on Fifth Avenue to protest the conditions that had led to the fire. It was attended by 80,000 people. Fuck yeah! Right. There's enough public support for the new workmen's compensation that's been previously struck down and it's amended and enacted in 1913. So this leads to a fucking shit ton of reforms and even, you know, the the whispers of which we can still feel today yeah. in our ear. <laughs> um, in addition, the state of New York creates a factory investigating commission to study safety, sanitation, wages, hours, and child labor in like sweatshops Frances Perkins who of course becomes the first female secretary of labor under FDR and who actually happened to be um, present that day and that she was at the park and like saw what happened oh no yeah she and Polly Newman are hired as investigators on the committee and over the years following the fire New York adopts 36 of the commission's recommendations into law and the Sullivan Huey fire prevention law passed that October and is known as being crucial in preventing similar fire fires in the future. Um, 100 years later, six victims still had remained unidentified uh, until a historian named Michael Hirsch researches their identities for four years using old newspaper articles, just like cross-checking and shit. Wow. And um, is able to identify each of them by name. Wow. And those women now uh, are buried in a large marble slab featuring a kneeling woman. Mm. Not in it, you know. Under it. Right. Every year on May Day, there's a commemoration at the Ash Building in New York, which is now called the Brown Building. It's owned by NYU. The Remember the Triangle Fire Coalition organizes events to commemorate the fire and bring awareness to the needs of workers today. In 2011, in honor of the fire's 100th anniversary, the coalition establishes the goal of the permanent memorial to honor the memory of those who died from the fire, to affirm the dignity of all workers, to value women's work, to remember the movement for worker safety and social justice stirred by tragedy, and to inspire future generations of activists. Yes. And that is the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire of 1911. Unbelievable. That was great. Thank you. That was very moving. Thank you. I'm so mad. I'm mad too. Let's be activists. <laughs> Want to? I mean, but here's what's beautiful about it is I think that people are can be passive if it's like, that's not my job. Right. My job's hard enough. I can't worry about those striking women who are. Yeah. But when tragedy strikes like that, when things like that happen 
to your fellow man. Yeah. It wipes away all that kind of like not my problem and th- yeah. th- those aren't my people. Yeah. And suddenly it's like it could be anybody and it could be me. And it was the ugh, it's so hard to see. And I don't know if they published any in the in the newspapers across the country, but there were, you know, there were faces of people lying on the ground. And, yeah. you know, and they said like in every every neighborhood in New York, someone had to attend multiple people had to attend multiple funerals like it just hit everyone hard and the fact that they had just been fucking in the streets you know protesting the treatment that they were getting yeah and they didn't get what they asked for which was safety and that's that would kill them yeah so tragic right and in some ways you could kind of connect it where it's just like they were killed by their bosses right because of it's not not directly but indirectly and it might as well be directly yeah. because they couldn't even it wasn't it was so bad yeah. that like they were trapped. They, it was yeah. a true fire trap. What about that motherfucker that just got off the roof? Yeah. Like he was there and he knew exactly what happened. He he witnessed it. He was in and the in midst his of mind. It. He's like, well, my daughters are here and I need to save them. Well, all these women here are people's daughters, too. Yeah. And you're just letting it go up. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty horrifying. But good things came out of it. Yes. I guess. Well, they do. Because yeah. here's the thing. It's that's the importance of unions. You yeah. have it's like you need unions to protect workers because you can't rely on right. people who who make money off of those workers. Right. They'll always pick themselves. Yeah. They'll always pick their own lives. They'll always pick their own comfort over some stranger that's making them money. That's right. And that they think that they are superior to because they're in the position of making more money just based solely on that. Yeah. No. Um, wow cool great job thank you that was really cool thank i'm glad you. i i'm glad i i remember like starting to read about that story and immediately being like i don't think i'll do this one you <laughs> I know, know i don't know why i just suddenly had this, mo- this morning i woke up and i was like not this morning obviously and i was like i want to do the triangle and then i was like what am i fucking doing yeah no i'm glad you did Hard. i think it's really important for people to know it's also that kind of thing when you're like this was industrialized feminism where i'm like wait what yeah. there's so much i don't so know much. about any of that stuff yeah it's pretty crazy like in the shirtwaist itself being a symbol of of you know feminism in right a way, in a way yeah <sighs> amazing yeah great job thank you you too um what is your fucking hooray or do you want me to go first i mean look at my piece of paper oh just the word hooray oh <laughs> yeah that's all you wrote <laughs> <laughs> um mine's really dumb and, and simple okay I, there's a big giant spider outside my window and i love and i'm proud of her and i love watching her <laughs> build her web and she's one of the hum- most humongous things i've ever fucking how seen. big show me with your hand um she's fat and that's she's like that oh my god like a silver dollar I don't know. Like, is that legs the, included or legs, just the body? With legs like that. Jesus Christ. She's enormous. And I, and I, can I tell you something gross? Don't tell anyone. I found two little centipedes in my house so far that Dottie's been fucking playing with. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, Spider, can you come back and come please. in and get these centipedes out of here, please? I love it. Yeah. You know, it's bugs. funny. Yeah, bugs are key and spiders are very important. Uh, growing right. up, my aunt Jean, I remember freaking out because I saw a spider and she was like, oh, no, no, that's our friend. Yeah. She'll keep all the flies out. My mom goes, always, every fucking spider that she's ever seen, it's Charlotte. Don't hurt it. <laughs> she says every fucking is Charlotte's web, every spider. My old roommate used to live up in Auburn and we were up there visiting her family and they lived there. Their house was out in the middle of the woods. Yeah. And we we're standing on the porch 
and uh, we're all standing there and then we all turn around and look and near the front door and there is a full on no. tarantula <gasps> climbing up the front of there and uh, we I was like couldn't breathe no. and her her mom turns around and goes what wonderful luck <laughs> <laughs> Oh, what a nice woman. She, she was a total nature lady. That's terrifying. Everyone in Australia is rolling their eyes at us right now. I so know. See what I have in my bed yeah. right now. They're like, our, our spiders kill you with a knife. Right. They look at you. Yeah. And then they stab you. They, they go like this with one leg across their throat. They threaten you emotionally. And then they stab you. And they make fun of your hair. <laughs> and they flip on a switchblade. They comb their own hair. And then they stab you. That's right. Well, then I guess mine, I can just be a simple as to say I got a massage oh yeah because it's been a long time and it was um a gift certificate from last Christmas that Danielle gave us right and I found it and was like oh I I haven't done anything like this in a long time I'm obsessed with this place the now the now in LA it's the best it's so good and at first when I walked in there were a lot of crystals yeah there's a lot of crystals and bath shit there was a lot of um it was very, as I call it, woo-woo. Uh-huh. And everyone was being real quiet, yeah. which I, makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. I'm a volume person. <laughs> and But I was like, shut up. You don't know. Right. And give it over. And I got the best masseuse. Massage therapist, sorry. The best massage therapist. And it was the best massage. I was so relaxed that when I left, I went out and bought a deck of moon cards. No, you didn't. Yes, I what did. What the fuck are moon cards? Moon cards are like women's tarot cards. <laughs> will you read I'm me like, my moon card? I need those. Yes, I will do. Next time, I'll do a moon card reading for you. I would love that. Yeah. Let's make a video of it. Okay. Um, yeah, we'll do that on the <laughs> fan cult. It's really, I really like it, but. Anyway, great. It was just a good feeling. I also just remember my therapist tells me this all the time that, um, what does she call it? Skin starvation. If you don't get touched enough, if you're on your own a lot, make sure you get massages or something because it's very important for human beings to have their skin touched. That's beautiful. It like releases certain chemicals, the dopamine thing. It's all that whatever, whatever, but it's really important for you. And you, it's easy to forget because if you're, if it just doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. And then when it does, you're like, Oh my God. Yes. I need to be back in this mode. Great point. Yeah. It's self-care. Do Learn it for it. you. It's self-care. <laughs> there was a, the reductress had a tweet this week and it was, oh. lady just keeps calling things self-care and sees what sticks. <laughs> Every Calls everything she does self-care. I love it. Follow reductress. They're hilarious. Um, Thanks for listening, guys. Yes. Thanks uh, for all your support. Yeah. We appreciate you so much. You make our skin starvation go away. That's right. Emotionally. You make our endorphins tingle. That's right. <laughs> Stay sexy. And don't get murdered. <laughs> Goodbye. Goodbye. Elvis, do you want to cook? Okay. Ah!